Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome once again to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions and technology brought to you from the fine folk at History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you for your company. Now then, we like to keep things pretty tight on Patented. We like to keep our episodes round about the half hour, 45 minute mark. But today's episode is a bit of a long one for us and it is long because it was basically too good and too interesting to cut down. There was just too much stuff to talk about. So brace yourselves for the episode on cryptocurrency with my guest today, Finn Brunton, who is an historian of technology at New York University. Now, if you're like me and have felt a little bit confused, a little bit left out by the cryptocurrency craze, then Finn's story is definitely for you. Just to reassure you, he's not going to be initiating you into today's crypto trading world. He's not going to try and sell you some top tips on trading with cryptocurrency, but he is going to take you on a journey through the history of cryptocurrency, why it exists in the first place. And I think when you understand that, like me, you might feel a lot happier. So this is a story of World War II code breakers. It's the story of the very earliest days of the internet, of techno-libertarians, and of futures that could have been, and of futures that might come to be. Hey, Finn, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dallas. It's a pleasure to be here. Look what I got on my desk. I got a copy. <laughs> I have a copy of your book on my desk, Digital Cash. The Unknown History of the Anarchist Utopians and Technologists Who Created Cryptocurrency. I've got to say, listen, I, I, why, why can I not get my head around Bitcoin? What's the other thing I can't get my head oh, around? Oh, blockchain, perhaps? Blockchain. <laughs> yeah, I can't get my head around. Honestly, there was, I don't know if you, do you know the podcast, you know, the missing crypto claim? Yes, yes. I forget yeah. who it is. Okay. He did a really nice explanation at the beginning on like episode one about how blockchain works. And he called his mother and stuff on the grounds. If his mother could understand it, then he's done a good job. I still don't understand it. <laughs> Bitcoin, blockchain, the whole cryptocurrency system is one of the, I think, few modern technologies that's in widespread use that's very difficult for even specialists to completely understand. Okay, good. I think there's something wrong with me because I spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about technology and working with technology, kind of. But honestly, I don't know what's wrong with my brain. It's really bad. I suppose, well, let, should we go? I mean, where should we start? I'm trying to work out where the beginning is. Is it the 1980s? Is it the 1930s? You choose. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question because we often think of the beginning as being 2008 when the Bitcoin yeah. paper was published. But one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so challenging for us to understand is that it's actually a stack, an accumulation of previous discoveries, previous inventions, right? It's actually a history of multiple inventions, one on top of another. And for me, the story of those inventions goes back to the 1940s, goes back to the Second World War, actually. Wow. Okay. So stack of inventions. I like this. I'm going to enjoy this episode because we've got a whole stack to get through. Let's go to the bottom of the stack. Is there a foundation thing that we need to talk about? 
Yes, the foundation thing is actually a problem. It's a, a problem to solve that we solved in the 1970s and we had not solved for the previous like 3,000 years. And it made endless trouble for people. And that problem was called symmetric key cryptography, which is an intimidating sounding name. But the essence of it is relatively simple, which is that if you want to communicate with someone in secret, then you both need a copy of the same code, right? Like if I'm going to put something into a cipher to send it to you so that it can be read only by you and sent securely, and you can know that it was sent only by me and no one ever altered it while it was in transit, if we want to communicate that way, then I can't just send you a sheet of paper with a bunch of mysterious letters and numbers on it. You need to have some way to read that. Okay, when you say the 1940s, of course, I'm immediately taken into sort of the code breakers of the 1940s and during the war. Is that kind of what we're talking about? Precisely. Because one of the reasons why the Allies were ultimately able to win the war in the time that they were was because of the fact that the Germans were using a symmetric key system to encode their messages, the famous Enigma machine. Enigma, yes, exactly. Yeah, so the, the reason why Leslie Park was able to triumph in the way that it was was because of the fact that the Germans had this unbelievably sophisticated machine, this unbelievably like sort of complex typewriter. But the fact is they had to set the systems to the same setting on either side to encrypt and decrypt their messages. And so once the British were able to see in between those two communications, right, to basically reconstruct what the settings would be on either side, then they could read yeah. and write the messages that they wanted to. Okay, so we've got the Enigma machine. We've got code breaking. We un I understand the principle of that. Where do we go from there? So by the end of the Second World War, the goal becomes to figure out some way, what would this even look like? How would this work? To figure out some way where I could have a mechanism that would let me encipher a message to you such that I didn't need to know what your key was. Is there a way in which we could solve the problem that Enigma reveals to us where I could have a way to write something in secret to you that only you could read? in such a way that only you would have access to it. Even I don't know the system that you use to decrypt the message. So this is the idea that in the technical world is called asymmetric key encryption. Asymmetric because the two parts are not the same. The part that I use to make the secret message to you is different from, but connected to, the part that you use to read the secret. You don't know what my part is and I don't know what your exactly. part is. Right, okay, got it. Exactly, and just to add to the challenge, Someone, an enemy, should be able to intercept my secret message to you and the key that I used to encode it for you and still not be able to read the message. Mm -hmm. So if this sounds like a tall order, <laughs> you know, it rather is. All right. So where are we? So the war's finished. People are sort of still thinking about this idea of cryptography and such. Where does it fit into kind of money? Like, how do we get from cracking German war secrets to cryptocurrency that Dallas doesn't understand? <laughs> That's a perfect question because... The jump is the other function that is served by a secret code, right? So I, I love the example of the Second World War because of the fact that people develop these brilliant systems to produce like incredibly sophisticated codes. What those codes did was always two things. One thing was what we think of a code as doing, which is to make a message secret. Mm -hmm. The other thing is to authenticate the message. The idea is that if I am writing a message to you in our special code, it's a proof that I am the one writing it, that I have not been, you know, assassinated by a spy who now has my code book and is writing. So it serves these dual functions. It serves a system of secrecy and a system of authentication. Mm -hmm. So as we move forward in time, people start building computers and then they start building computer networks, mm -hmm. right? They start like linking the machines together. Mm -hmm. And a handful of computer scientists in the 1970s, many of whom have backgrounds in cryptography, they are beginning to foresee a problem, a potential future crisis. And it's a problem that to us might sound like an opportunity, like our future, which is everyone is going to start doing everything on their computers, mm -hmm. on their networked computers. That's how we're going to start buying and selling. That's how we're going to start corresponding with each other. Mm -hmm. That's how we're going to start looking for jobs. That's how we're going to start, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem that these computer scientists foresee has to do with both sides of that cryptography issue. One is that unless we develop a new kind of cryptography, then all of that life online 
as we would come to call it, mm -hmm. is going to be conducted in public. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be very bad for many reasons. The other problem is that there is, as yet, when they're working on it, no way for us to prove who we are online, right? There's no reason why I cannot say, like, I am Dallas, and I announce that from now on, the History of Invention podcast is going to be devoted to episodes promoting Finn's work. So there's no way for us to prove that we are who we claim to be. Right. And there is also no way for us to reliably, provably communicate secretly. So this circle of computer scientists begins to consider, how are we going to forestall this problem? The problem as they foresee it is a problem of potential tyranny on a scale of 1984, on a scale of a dystopian nightmare. When you say they, who? I mean, are there names that we need to know about, people we need to know about? These were academics, by and large, who were the very first people to be sitting on these machines. And they already realized that the promise, the future that they offered. So a key figure in the story is John C. McCarthy, a computer scientist who coined the term artificial intelligence, okay. a, a really remarkable person who delivered a lecture on the home information terminal in the 1970s, where he said, like, this is going to be huge, but also how are people going to conduct their lives on this system if there's no way that they can do it privately? Okay, John McCarthy. So John McCarthy identifies this problem. A number of other people do, but he's one of the most prominent. And as it happens, his house sitter is a graduate student named Whitfield Diffie. He's like taking care of his house in the hills of Berkeley, California. And Diffie and two other computer scientists are thinking about this precise problem. And Diffie in particular has been ruminating on this issue of how could we develop this system that would allow you to split apart the public and the private keys of a cryptographic system. Mm -hmm. And Diffie is really the one who has the breakthrough moment. There's a wonderful story that he is in McCarthy's house and he actually like figures out the solution to the fundamental problem and then gets up to get a drink. He gets up to get a soda from the refrigerator. And in that moment, he almost forgets the solution that he came up with. <laughs> so it's this moment of like, I had to go and sit down again and like make sure that I reconstructed it properly in my mind. So he's meant to be house-sitting. What was his eureka moment? What was it? So his eureka moment is one of the key, as it were, inventions in this history of the invention of cryptocurrency, which is the development of what came to be called public key cryptography. Mm -hmm. He figures out a framework, a model, for how you could split the key for solving a puzzle into two parts. And this is an area that gets into some quite deep mathematical waters, mm -hmm. but the, the essence of it is that he figures out a class of problems such that it is possible for us to have separate public and private keys, where something encrypted with the public key can be decrypted with the private key, mm -hmm. but doesn't tell you anything about the private key. And something can be encrypted with the private key in such a way that it can be read by anyone who has the public key, but it proves that the person with the private key wrote that message. Right, okay. So it provides a way to authenticate and create secrecy. Got it. These ideas, uh, we're still not dealing with currency yet. We're still dealing with just the advent of network computers and how do we keep them safe and how do we provide authenticity and how do we, you know, make sure things can be kept private. Exactly. Okay. And the moment when it turns over into money happens just a few years after that with another cryptographer who's part of this kind of larger circle of people named David Chow. Mm. So one of the applications that people immediately seize on for public key cryptography is, oh, I could use this to sign things. I could use this to prove that I am such and such a person and therefore that I can send you money, for instance. I can use this to authenticate myself to my bank. I can use this to okay, you know, a check or what have you. Got it. So David Chaum wants to take this one step further. He says, that's all well and good. It's great that you can authenticate yourself. It's great that you can do these kinds of signing activities. But the problem is you're still signing things. If we're worried about privacy... And I want to be able to, let us say, make a political donation or a religious donation or, you know, purchase a product of some kind. And I don't want that information just out there for everyone. We need to have some digital thing that can be like cash, right? Where like I have cash in hand, I trade it to someone else. 
No records need to exist of this transaction. It doesn't need to be connected to me. But isn't normal cash like that anyway? Like if I've got a, if I've got a, a shoebox full of $100 bills under my bed, I can go and do <laughs> stuff and no one's going to know. I mean, cash is just a kind of token anyway, isn't it? So Yes. So what was David Chum's sort of... I think this is the bit that I get confused about. Like, what, what's different? What's different is, and this is... It's a counterintuitive moment to think about. But what Chum said was, we need a way to make cash digital, right? We need a way to make cash into something that you can... And this is a part that I find is... It's just visually confusing. But imagine that you have a card, right? And we would think of a credit card or a mm-hmm. debit card. But on this card is your digital cash. What that means is that when you use this card, it doesn't connect to a remote account. It doesn't ring up the bank to say, hey, is this person okay to transact this money? And then create a record of that transaction between you and a merchant or you and someone else. It doesn't need to do that because what's on the card is the digital equivalent of the cash that's in your hand, in your shoebox, right? So just David Chum, he seems to, this paper that he wrote in, I think it was 83, wasn't it? Early 80s. First of all, just tell us a bit about who David Chum, because it, it kind of, it sort of has that sort of libertarian, we're going to, you know, we're going to um, imagine a new, new utopian future free from the man. Is, is that is, is that right? Is, was that kind of at the heart? Because the thing is, I can do stuff, you know, digitally pay for things, and there is a bank. So what was the problem with banks, I suppose? Like, what, what why was he so against it. So what I want us to imagine is to cast, I feel extremely old when I say things like this, but to cast our minds back to the distant past, the early 1980s. I want all of the listeners to, in your minds, you know, remove PayPal, remove Venmo, remove like being able to type your credit card into something. And now imagine the moment of, and we're we're moving a little bit between the, the mid 80s and the early 90s now, but imagine that moment of going online, right, and looking at some page of online information. And let's say that page includes a file for a song, you know, or a digital file of a book Mm -hmm. that you want to buy. Mm -hmm. How do you buy it? There are no mechanisms. There is no way for you to do that. Chaum, I think very presciently, said, we can see the future. The future is obvious. The future is a world in which Everyone is using digital platforms all the time for most of their transactions and interactions with the world. And if we do not have some equivalent to cash that's digital, then we can foresee a future in which the possibility for controlling individual people's lives becomes far beyond whatever would have been possible before. Chum has some libertarian tendencies, but at heart, what he's really concerned about is giving disproportionate power over our lives to anyone, whether they be governments or corporations. Mm -hmm. He says a future in which we have digital transactions, which we're going to have, a future in which we have those transactions, but not some form of privacy, is a future in which a company can do things like not just keep track of what you buy, They can do things like decide how much what you want to buy should cost for you based on their past data about you. They can start to make decisions about whether or not it's right for you to have access to certain things. And so can a government. Mistrust, obviously, seems to be a kind of a sort of defining motivation for all this general kind of mistrust of things and and what might happen in the future and, and authoritative states or whatever institutions. Exactly. And I think like in that light, we should think about Chaum's kind of great invention in its historical context, which is in the United States in the aftermath of the revelation of what was called COINTELPRO, the FBI program to monitor and control and destroy uh, left-wing movements, where they discovered that like, oh, these people had like spies everywhere and they were manipulating people and trying to put them in prison. And likewise, when computer scientists were giving congressional testimony, about what they were working on, they included things like documents about the Holocaust, right? Which was in part driven by data collection, by the capacity to identify a population and then identify groups within it and then capture those groups, destroy them. So there was a real sense that we are giving unconditional power over people's lives to who knows what group, right? If we let this system get built, right? If we let a system be created that allows all of your transactions to be tracked. 
Really, you're painting this picture of a kind of wild west, like real early days of the internet and, and sort of predictions of what might happen. So it's pretty wild west. I mean, how radical was Cham's paper? I mean, did people sort of straight away go, oh, this is going to be brilliant. I know exactly how we're going to we're going to call it. We're going to call it Bitcoin. Because he, he came <laughs> up with something called Digicash, didn't he? Which was a kind of a sort of a precursor to Bitcoin, which is the one everyone knows. Yes, yes, except that, and this is a, a very, like, this is a, it's a really good way of, of putting it, I think, because the thing about Chaum that made him really significant is also the thing that makes him different from Bitcoin, right? And I think we're about to get into one of my all-time favorite predictions of the future that came true, because Chaum believed in personal privacy. He feared this future of potential mass surveillance and control, but he foresaw the way to solve the problem as being to work with existing systems of currency with existing money. So when Chaum created DigiCash, he said, I want to invent some magic new kind of money. I just want to come up with a way that you can withdraw money from your bank exactly the way that you would in an ATM with your ATM card, right? You can withdraw that money, except that it comes in the form of digital cash rather than physical cash. And then you can have it on your computer. You can have it on a card. You can pay a merchant with it. They'll receive it. They deposit it back in the bank mm -hmm. where it just turns back into everyday regular money. Mm -hmm. So there's no sort of idea that this is a competitor with, you know, the dollar or the pound or the euro. There's no idea that this is going to be something radically different. All it's going to be is a system that makes it so that just like with cash in hand, you can buy something anonymously, and then the merchant deposits the money. So the reason why this is especially significant is that as he was working on this project, he made a prediction, which is that he said, if we don't build digital cash that works with existing national currencies, then someone is going to build it as an alternative to existing national currencies. Ah, okay. okay, which segues us nicely, I suppose, into, okay, well, let's talk about the, the alternative, which I suppose is cryptocurrency as, as we think about it now. How do we get from Chaum to Bitcoin or digital or cryptocurrency? So the way we get there is actually wonderfully direct, right? Because in many ways, Chaum is the, is the starting point for a lot of these ideas mm -hmm. because he almost gets DigiCash off the ground. And the reason why it never quite works, there's a lot of different sort of versions of this story, but let's just say that it never quite succeeds. It works technically. It doesn't quite work from a business standpoint. So what he does, though, is he plants a thousand seeds. All of these people online, as we can now call them, right? Because there's now an online for people to be online of. They have read Chaum's papers. They've read Chaum's testimony. They understand, like, this is the danger that we're facing. This is the future that we're going towards. Here's an idea for how to solve that. What if we just built our own, right? What if we built our own variants of it? So what that kicks off is something, almost 20 years of various online experiments in building new kinds of currency. Some of them start with Chaum's fundamental idea, where what you do is develop a protocol to just turn regular money into digital money and then back again. But increasingly, especially as more and more radical people take this idea, they start to say, why would we want to have this connected with regular money at all? And this is where things get really hairy in terms of libertarian philosophy. Mm -hmm. Because the people who take up Chaum's idea, just as he predicted, they didn't succeed in building it for national governments to use. So the people who are coming up with the idea now are against national governments. They want right. to develop alternative currencies. They want to develop things that can function completely outside of the system of central banks. They want things that work like gold. So what they start developing reflects these ideas, right? Like they are shifting further and further away from any kind of format that like your bank could use into something where there is some mechanism online that is the bank. So some people make this gold literal. They'd start developing tools that are come to be called digital gold currencies. And the idea is that there is some guy, there is like, you know, a libertarian pilled oncologist in Florida, and he has a safety deposit box full of gold bars, <laughs> and you can own a couple of grams of that gold and you can transact it anonymously. So those projects work, and digital gold currencies really did work. There was a period in the 1990s when we could work it with them. It was Bitgold, I think it was. Was it called? Yeah. Exactly. Bitgold, yeah. So the problem with the digital gold currencies, and this is what leads to things like Bitgold, is that they're still not really digital. 
because the gold is still physically sitting there somewhere. And as happened over and over again, the main customers for digital gold currencies are people who want to use them to engage in fraud, you know, drug dealing, money laundering, Mm -hmm. primarily that kind of thing. So then they get busted by various federal agents and all the gold gets seized and everybody loses everything. So the new generation of crypto anarchists and sort of libertarian programmers are saying we have to come up with a digital system that means that there's no physical part of it at all. There's no gold to be seized. The system can just live on the network. And this is what brings us to the development of Bitcoin. of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Is this where we get into blockchain? Is 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 blockchain yes. the thing that's kind of confusing to my brain? Is this the kind of the mechanism? The name Satoshi Nakamoto always comes up, and I've never really and, I, and maybe you could square those two things. Like, what is blockchain? How does it work? And who is Satoshi Nakamoto? <laughs> yes, both both excellent, extremely difficult questions in different ways. You know, so this is precisely where blockchain comes in, because if you want to create a system that allows us to transact using money that is only digital, right, that has like no bank involved, no drawer full of gold, then what confirms that there is as much money as the creator says that there is, right? If I create magic internet money and I convince a bunch of people to start using it, then why can't I just, you know, control C, control P over and over again on my money units to make as many of them as I want if people Mm -hmm. will buy them from me? How do you know if you can't, you know, weigh the bars of gold, if you can't rely on the bank to regulate the money flow, how do you know how much money there is? And how do you know how much each person actually has in their account? That is, If I say that I'll pay you X number of magic internet money coins, how do you know that I have them to spend, Mm -hmm. right? How do you know that they are, quote unquote, real? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is the blockchain. And the blockchain is another layer of confusion in this. But I think a thing that really helps to clarify what it is goes back to the invention of the blockchain, which people often think has to do with cryptocurrency, but it doesn't. It actually has to do with science. So two scientists named Haber and Stornetta 
in New Jersey who worked for Bell Labs, they are facing another digital crisis in the future, right? But the crisis that they're facing is a crisis of the failure of reliable scientific data. And the problem is this. In the old days, which again goes back to like our childhoods, nonetheless, <laughs> we call it the old days now. If you're a working scientist, one of the things that you have is called a bench lab notebook. And this is like a physical object where it's been, the binding is sewn in a special way. There's special things printed on all the pages such that you sign and date, you add times to everything, and the book cannot be fraudulently altered after the fact. If you want to change some earlier results, you can't. If you want to cut pages out to be like, let's just hide that data that contradicts my result, you can't. So Haber and Stornetta are seeing the future, which is that scientists are all moving to digital tools. And they're like, this is really going to mess up. Like, you know, what's to stop me from going back and being like, let's just alter some of these digits back here, you know, so that now it all lines up nicely and proves my result. And one of the solutions they come up with is a system in which you put your data into a digital format and then you do something to that data. And this is where things get a little bit technically tricky, but you do something with that data called hashing. And what hashing is, is a computational tool that can take a big chunk of data and turn it into a little string of letters and numbers. And that little string of letters and numbers uniquely corresponds to that chunk of data. It's like a fingerprint. Mm -hmm. And what Haber and Stornetta realize is I could take my chunk of scientific data, my findings, and then I add a timestamp to those, you know, an exact time, a date, and then I hash that whole chunk, that mass of data into this little unique fingerprint. And then, so first of all, that fingerprint now says, if I like post that fingerprint, then everyone can verify like, oh yeah, that timestamp and that data, those are connected because they produce this unique fingerprint. And then they say, what if we took this one step further? What if we said, now I'm going to take that previous fingerprint and I'm going to add it to my next big chunk of data along with the timestamp for that next big chunk of data. And then I'm going to make a hash of that, another fingerprint. Now, that latest fingerprint I've made, that proves that previous chunk of data, but it also proves the fingerprint for the chunk of data before it. Mm -hmm. Right. So now if I want to go back and alter my numbers from the first one, if I want to go back all the way to the beginning and change that data, I can't. Because if I change that data, it's going to mess up the fingerprint that I produced and then mess up the next one and the next one and the next Got one. It. Like a digital receipt. Exactly. Like a string of digital receipts. And what you can think of about this and the way that they begin to describe it is, well, it's a series of blocks and they're all chained together so that like they cannot ever be altered. Yeah. Funny <laughs> yes, that. Precisely. There you go. Blocks. Are, so I, if I, I just need to sort of think about those blocks in terms of a, like a digital receipt of, or is that the right term? Is receipt maybe? Or the receipt kind of is, is owned by someone, but it's like, a, yeah, a digital fingerprint yes. that cannot be, that cannot be. Yes, ordered. exactly. And I think a receipt okay. is a nice way of thinking about it because when you go to return something to the store, the receipt like proves that you bought it. It proves that you bought it within like a particular period of time because it's time stamped. It like has a bunch of, yeah, sort of time related information in it. And that's what Haber and Stornetta create. Tell me about Satoshi Nakamoto. So. Or Nakamoto, how am I pronouncing it? It's a made-up name, so it's sort of really up to us how we want to pronounce it. Yes. Well, I know, well, this is it. So how do we get from Bell Labs? Because that, that's yes. the sort of the name, and I know there's a sort of mystery behind it. Haber and Stornetta, those two Bell Lab scientists, those are the people who are cited the most by Satoshi Nakamoto. So they developed this idea, this way of chaining blocks of data together so that all of those old blocks are provably, irrefutably accurate, right? And can never be altered. They come up with this system and the idea sort of kicks around for a while in different forms. And then people start to think about how they could use it to produce an actual working form of purely digital money. And a number of people all have similar versions of this idea. And this way, it's kind of close to the invention of something like the telephone, right? Where there wasn't just like one telephone, there were like five, you know, they all were like being developed more or less in parallel. But the one who comes up with some really clever ways to stitch everything together and with some really kind of interesting mechanisms in there that we can discuss is a pseudonymous software developer named Satoshi Nakamoto. And Nakamoto produces a paper about 
so-called Bitcoin, the Bitcoin white paper, in 2008, at the very sort of nadir of the global financial crisis, around Halloween of 2008. Mm -hmm. And what Nakamoto produces is different from a number of earlier inventions in a couple of specific ways. But one of them is the fact that it came out at a time of financial emergency. So all of these software developers and hackers and cryptographers who had seen a lot of ideas like this come and go are suddenly like, hmm, this seems like it might actually have legs. And we're in the middle of a gigantic social crisis around whether or not money as we know it is even going to survive. That's interesting. If there hadn't been a crisis, do you think that there wouldn't have been that sort of motivation to do this? I mean, so often, you know, invention and innovation is, is determined by history and cultural things that are going Absolutely. On. I believe that we would, the technologies were there and they worked, they were interesting. I don't think that we would have ended up with Bitcoin necessarily if the financial crisis had not been happening when it was released, right? We would have ended up with something else that like built on it or, or drew on those ideas. Yeah. So tell us who this person was. Nakamoto was a software developer with, you, we can infer a lot about their background, about their particular libertarian politics, about their technical approach to things. They're often discussed as some kind of like cosmic super genius. But when you actually go back and read the paper and look at the early software and then read the mailing list where that paper and software were posted, you realize that like they got a lot of help. This was like a social project. Like I think it's important to understand this is an invention that was produced by a whole community of cryptographers and hackers. So Nakamoto's identity is still unknown. Nakamoto controls a huge chunk of Bitcoin worth an enormous amount of money. I mean, less today, obviously, but worth an enormous amount of money, which has never moved, right? Like after a certain date, like none of that money has ever been transacted. And we know that because we can see it in the blockchain ledger that Bitcoin runs on. We can see every transaction. Nakamoto has gone quiet, has been quiet for more than a decade now. But somebody, I mean, somebody, I mean, it's like Banksy, you know, yes. we all know who Banksy is now. You know, you know, you can't keep these things secret for very long. I'm amazed that no one, no one's going to spill the beans. So I yeah. think the crucial difference with someone like Banksy, which I think helps us kind of understand the moment when Bitcoin was invented and the community it came out of, was that... Artists, you know, ultimately they have to like work with teams <laughs> to be part of a larger milieu. And serious cryptographers are genuinely private and can be genuinely and absolutely anonymous. Everyone has their own theories about who Nakamoto might be. My personal theory actually involves someone who was part of the digital gold currency movement in the 1990s. Yeah, I think a lot of people okay. have been looking in the wrong place, but... I used to joke that if someone had created Bitcoin as like as an art project, right, as like a sort of comment on capitalism, yeah. it would be spectacular. Well, that's, well it, it kind of is. Well, I kind of think of it a, a little mm. bit like an art project. It, it, you know, it is that sort of anonymous Banksy kind of Wild West thing. And I don't need an art gallery. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to do my work anonymously on wall. You know, it is a comment on lots of things in the way that sort of Bitcoin is. Okay, we've got this mystery. And this is a bit of a Bitcoin blockchain primer <laughs> for myself as well as the listeners. When we talk about mining, what are we talking about? So we've got we, we've, we've got Bitcoin, we've got a currency, we've got a, a ledger, so it can't be, so we can understand how it, to keep it all kind mm -hmm. of above board, as it were. When people sort of Bitcoin mining and sort of computers hooked up doing things, what's going on there? Where it all comes together here is that Nakamoto makes a really interesting leap forward and says, the way this currency is going to work is that it's going to be what we call in economics a deflationary currency. That means that over time, there's going to be less of it. And it is going to become, in theory, more valuable rather than less valuable. So in order to make this work, Nakamoto has to set up a system that is going to make it so that reliably, with no one able to control the rate of it, new money is going to get produced and that rate of production is going to slow down, right? Like new money is going to get injected into the system at a gradually decreasing rate. And what this is meant to be like is like gold mining. You find a gold deposit in the earth and you start working it and early on you get a lot of gold and then over time the gold slows down and that deposit will eventually run out. There is a fixed amount of this and it's eventually mm -hmm. going to end. Mm -hmm. So this is where we get the mining metaphor. But what is the mining reality of this? Nakamoto's program, in order to add every new block of data, every new kind of chunk of information to the Bitcoin blockchain, it's going to take 
a bunch of computational work. The reason for the work is, and we can talk a little bit more about this if it's unclear, this is one of the kind of most peculiar parts of the whole operation. But you remember we talked about hashing, right? Like hashing is how you add things to a blockchain. It's how you make that little fingerprint of unique data. So there's another property of hashing, which is that for certain kinds of hashing algorithms, there can be multiple ways that that fingerprint can come out. And what I can do is I can say, I want a version of that fingerprint that has some really weird property in it that is very unlikely that you will be able to find. Because of the way hashing works, the only way to find that fingerprint is by guessing, right? By being like, let's hash it this way. No, let's hash it this way. No, this way, this way, this way, this way. No, no, no. Now, if I say, I want you to hash this data it's going to produce a special unique fingerprint that corresponds to only that data. I want that fingerprint to have five consecutive zeros. Then you're going to have to guess an unknown number of millions of times before you produce that one with five consecutive zeros. So what that literally means is that a computer is going to have to do a ton of work producing guesses, countless guesses, until it arrives at the right one. So Nakamoto says, I'm going to use this property of hashing so that to add the next chunk of data to the blockchain, you have to make your computer guess millions, hundreds of millions, trillions of times to produce this right answer. The reward that you get for being the first person to arrive at the right answer is that the next round of Bitcoin that's created, you get it. It's in your wallet, right? If you guess it successfully, then you get the next chunk of gold. So hence, loads and loads of computers in Iceland in a chilled warehouse yes. chugging away trying to guess numbers of... Yes, yes, precisely. Chains, of, ...of numbers of, of blocks, of fingerprints. So this was Nakamoto's real invention, right? Because what it does is it solves a set of problems at the same time. It solves the problem of how does money get added to the system? Well, money gets added to the system automatically through this mechanism. How does it keep that money addition from like spinning out of control. It does it because it can choose how difficult to make adding new money to the system, right? But is, is someone controlling the rate? A bit like the sort of, you know, the Bank of England will control the rate of printing of money and, all, and then money is more valuable or less valuable. Is someone controlling that? They are not. And that is the sort of libertarian mining element of it, which is that Nakamoto and Nakamoto's collaborators early on in 2008, 2009, they set up the mechanism so that it would function automatically. But if it's deflationary, will it sort of, is there a finite amount and eventually it'll sort of run out? There is. There is a finite amount of these coins, 21 million, I believe. And they are also being made available at a steadily decreasing rate. So like on the earliest days, the days that everyone who is into this subject looks back on with this kind of like, oh God, if only I had set up a computer to mine, I could have gotten, I, my chances would have been good of getting 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, you know, and then it diminished and diminished <laughs> yeah. and diminished. When was the first transaction? What was the first transaction? When, when was the first time somebody paid for something using Bitcoin? The first transactions were actually tests conducted between some of the sort of very first developers. And then the subsequent transactions were also tests, but they are now tests that I think in retrospect, people are very upset about, such as spending 10,000 Bitcoin as a proof of concept to buy a single pizza, right? Which is basically the most expensive pizza ever. Wait, ever so created. 10, well, yes. Well, how much did 10,000 Bitcoin, what's that worth? I mean, obviously it seems to be worth different amounts all the time, but what was it worth then? <laughs> yes, it depends a lot. At the time, 10,000 Bitcoin was worth nothing. 10,000 Bitcoin was worth the ability to convince someone to give you a pizza for it. Pizza. See that? Okay, now 10,000 Bitcoin now, 10 years later. Oh, God. I, I'm bad at doing the math in my head, but I think Bitcoin is currently trading at 20,000 US dollars per coin. So that is a very, very pricey pizza. It's <laughs> a really expensive pizza. It's really funny because you hear all these stories about people who had like Bitcoin and they, they forgot about it. Guy had a, a Bitcoin wallet in inverted commas, which he forgot about, and it was on, an, and, and he locked oh, and had ten guesses to on. Did you I, hear the story? I, yes, yeah. And it's worth like a gazillion dollars, and it was password protected. And after the tenth guess of the password, it would erase the money. So he had to get kind of get in touch with all his like ex girlfriends and whatever in order to try and remember what his password yeah, was. Yeah. 
I, I don't know what happened. It was, but it's sort of there's a movie there somewhere, and also someone there was in a landfill. I know there was yeah. someone. I think in James, Ireland, James Howells in Wales, in Wales. <laughs> In yeah, Wales, yeah. thank you. What well, just yeah? Tell us that, sir, because because it's kind of bonkers and funny, and I like it. <laughs> it is absolutely bonkers, but it also really shows the the number of problems that were created by the solution that Bitcoin offered. Right. So going back to the beginning of our conversation, the whole Bitcoin system relies on public and private keys, right? And that's it. If you have someone's private key, then you can access their Bitcoin wallet. And if you have lost your private key, then it's not like you can go to the bank with five other pieces of identification and confirm yourself as the owner of it. So poor, yeah. poor James, my heart really goes out to him. So he was mining Bitcoin just as a hobbyist, right? As a lot of us were in the early days, right? Just like curious about this new system and takes a lot of work, right? Like computational work, right? So you're, you're just, you know, you're putting wear on your computer. The fans are running, all the other processes are slowing down. So he eventually stopped doing it, swapped out the hard drive at some point. It ended up in a drawer. It ended up in the trash. It ended up in the landfill. And then it began to dawn on him that there were thousands of Bitcoins connected with this wallet address years later. And so there's a really, it's an extraordinary and again, like very frustrating story to read because we can go on the Bitcoin blockchain, you and I, we can look at the public blockchain, we can see his enormous fortune sitting there. But if we could see it, can't we just kind of go, okay, we know it's legitimate, you can have the money. You would think, right? But it's not just that... On some level, we might not be able to trust this story or everyone would be coming forward to say, I, too, was, was an early miner of this enormous volume. But also, the fact is, the function of the blockchain is to make it so that the system cannot be tampered with, right? So even if we all agree that poor James has been through enough, really, you know, and deserves to have access to this, there is no way for anyone to retroactively alter the blockchain without breaking the currency as a whole. Honestly, it's such an amazing story because, it, you know, you talk about mining and here we, we go from Bitcoin mining to actual physical mining in a rubbish tip mm -hmm. in Wales. Somewhere. Yes. And I think there is a project underway where they're trying to get permission to actually look for this wretched hard drive. <laughs> to <laughs> Yes. I mean, well, he reached out to them and, you know, reached out to the people who run the landfill and they were like, oh, well, there is a pattern in how we move the bulldozer yeah. around. So, But what he's looking for is something the size of yeah. a pack of cigarettes that's probably about four feet down in the trash in a space the size of like a football pitch somewhere out there. And he has thought about, I know for a little while he was thinking about like funding it through a documentary about the process of trying to find it. There's a movie there as well about looking for yeah. that. And I'm just kind of, I just want to sort of slightly kind of wrap up, but I just want to know kind of what the future is. But there's so much talk about Bitcoin. Oh, it's rubbish. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. Oh, it's the best thing ever. And then a new kind of Bitcoin <laughs> comes along and that turns out to be fraudulent. Is it going to be around forever or is this a kind of fad or what are your thoughts? Everyone knows the sort of first year econ realization that like, oh, money only is valuable because we believe in it, right? Mm -hmm. But Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies really are in that position of only being valuable as long as people believe that they will hold value into the future because of their technological sophistication or because the state is about to collapse or because of X, Y, and Z. So what that leads to in practice has been this extraordinary sort of subculture of people. I'm sure you've seen them, people with, you know, got the laser eyes avatars online. They have like mm -hmm. this kind of incredible system of slang for hodling and all these different things that they do to, to sustain the shared collective belief that this system is going to be the future. What I believe, if I put my historian hat on, is that we are in the really early days of what blockchains and cryptocurrencies will be. And Bitcoin is going to be looked back on appropriately for this podcast as a moment of invention, but not the product that we end up widely using any more than we are all still using, you know, bell telephones or I'm thinking of like the very first telephones, right? The ones where you like shout into a giant tube. I feel like Bitcoin is the equivalent of that. That's fascinating. Okay, final thought, because, you, you know, you're an expert on this. What should I invest in? Like, what, <laughs> was the, what was the, so where, where's your, where's the smart money 10 years in the future for our patented podcast listeners? What would you recommend? 
My, my first piece of advice would actually be uh, useful life advice in general is to never ask an academic for money advice because <laughs> I've clearly made bad decisions myself. <laughs> but the second would be that I think the, not to get political at the very end of this podcast, but, but I think in some ways the frenzy to invest in cryptocurrencies, it's a bet that I would say anyone who is listening to this podcast who doesn't like run their own crypto brokerage is going to lose because the smart information is all on the other side of the desk, right? Like this space is a space that urgently needs more regulation and stability before it's something that you should put any actual money into or else you're going to end up like those poor souls who are in, you know, Celsius and these various other platforms where the platform's shut off their accounts, right? Made it so you couldn't withdraw or trade your cryptocurrency in order to help you not panic and freak out and try to sell it, right? Like, I think this space is a space that needs a lot more oversight and a lot more responsible management before it's something that you should be, you know, cashing out your house to <laughs> to put all of your funds into. Yeah, and a real understanding of human psychology, I think. I think yes. that idea of belief underpinning that is really interesting Finn thank you so much Finn's book Digital Cash is the book to go to if you want to follow up this podcast it's fantastic and uh, Finn listen thank you so much for being so brilliant today on the podcast and just slowly walking me through it it's been an eye opener and it's been really educational thank you thank you Dallas this has been a delight That's your lot. Thank you very, very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, extra long episode. If you have, don't forget to leave a rating and a review. It helps us a lot and helps others discover the show, of course. And uh, as ever, I love hearing what you think of the show. Any ideas, good or bad, let me know. Particularly if you've got any stories you want us us to cover. We'd love to hear from you. Next time, it is going to be a complete handbrake turn. We are going to be discussing the invention of... The sports bra, which of course was in the news recently as England ladies won the European Cup. And the sports bra was once again on display. And I'll be talking to real-life inventor of the sports bra, Lisa Lindell. Look forward to your company. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.